Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. gentlemen, and welcome to the four persons, and this is going to be our final episode in covering the gospel of Matthew, and what an honor it's been to do this series with Luke, and uh, next Monday we'll return with something light, and then of course we're taking the next two Mondays off because of the holidays, and when we return on January 8th. We're going to jump into the Gospel of John, and that is going to be so exciting. So listen, we have a lot of material to cover tonight, so to make sure that we stay on schedule, I'm going to go ahead and let Luke uh, finish up with Chapter 26 without any interruption from me, and I, I won't chime in until we get into Chapter 27. So go ahead and take it away, Luke. Yeah, John, we we really packed a lot of information in here, and uh, and uh, well, it's it's beautiful information. It's pretty amazing. Uh, we we can have a little commentary. Uh, uh, I'll I'll show you a point. It would be a good point for commentary because there's something here that is just just completely amazing, and and when we get to it, you'll know it. So we're going to go ahead and start reading again. Then we're going to start at Matthew 26, uh, 26 through 29. And whilst they were at supper, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke and gave to the disciples and said, Take ye and eat. This is my body. And taking the chalice, he gave thanks and gave to them, saying, Drink ye all of this, for this is my blood in the New Testament, which shall be shed for many unto remission of sins. 
And I say to you, I will not drink from henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I shall drink it with you anew in the kingdom of my Father. Now, it would be the last time Jesus would drink while in mortal flesh, uh, is one understanding. But Jesus began to enter in his Father's glory, and from the cross he said, I thirst. The word made flesh came to a Passover and said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you or with us all. God in the flesh, after putting in place the Passover over 1,300 years earlier, came to fulfill and participate as the true Passover. To truly see this and contemplate its, its majesty and holiness is, is just really amazing. Uh, he does so now as the head of the body and the mediator of the, of the new covenant, of course, is our Catholic understanding. But when we look at this setter, the third cup of the setter is called the Thanksgiving cup. He thanks Eucharistasis and said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in memory of me. Now, a lot of Protestants look at this word memory and they say, you know, it, it's just a remembrance. It's, it's symbolic. But the word anomnesis in Greek, uh, meaning offer this as my memorial offering, is, is, is a true understanding of this. And that's the way the apostles and their disciples and their disciples after picked as an essential part of Christianity. So we do so until he comes again, this cup. You'll show the death of the Lord, and he's shown it to the Father. He says, until he comes again. So he said he will not drink of the vine uh, again until he entered his Father's glory. At the garden, he said, let this cup pass. So the third cup of the setter, the Thanksgiving cup. So this is the fourth cup he's talking about. The last thing he did from the cross is partake of the fourth cup fulfilling the true purpose of the setter. After the fourth cup, the Jews would repeat, I will be your God and you will be my people. The fourth cup is God's. Uh, when we read Psalms 22, which begins with, why have you forsaken me? And ends with, I will declare my name in a great church. So we can see this culmination of the fourth cup as I will declare my name in a great church also. Remember Amos and Paul confirming the prophecy of Amos of the Gentiles entering the church. I will spouse you to me forever. I will spouse you to me in justice. I will call those my people who are not my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. From the cross, the Adam giving birth to his bride said, It is consummated. The marriage is consummated in sacrifice for the bride. So, what must have it been like when at the Passover, Jesus strongly desired to celebrate? He showed the apostle how his body and blood is real food in the context of the setter. When he began to reveal his words of John 6 to them, is the beginning of it. And he says, my flesh is real food. The bread is real food. Can Jesus, who is the word that sustains time and matter in existence, place his glorified flesh that transcends the world into the material elements of the bread and wine, and in a universe designed around faith, 
keep all of the material elements of bread and wine before our senses? Of course he can. Like the church fathers, God said it, so we believe it. And its primary purpose gives us a, a deeper reason to, to believe it. This is the true Passover for the general redemption of the world before the Father until the end of time. Jesus then gave the apostles, the first priests of the Catholic Church through the Holy Spirit, the ability to do the same. Just like Protestants choose the words of the Pharisees over, over God's when it came to man through, through the power of the Holy Spirit, being able to forgive sins, they chose the words of the crowds and followed John in, in 666. Jesus said, will you also leave to his apostles? Because the crowds left in John 666. And what did Peter respond? The first pope of our church. He responded, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. These words, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You cannot partake of the altar spiritually until you're baptized into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. You cannot partake of the graces of the altar unless you come to the altar with the sacrifice of a pure heart. In the sprinkling of the blood that speaks better than that of Abel, cleansing the venial sins at every holy mass, and in uh, faith in confession of a contrite heart is the only way mortal sins are destroyed so that you can return to the altar through the mercy of God. This is a systematic theology uh, of a sacramental life, and in this life is all that you need for the assurance of salvation. As Paul said, if you hold fast to what I need to you, and this this is going to be really fascinating. The matzah of the setter is broken into three pieces. And the third piece is hidden uh, until the end. This is most likely what was presented with the third cup of the setter, the Thanksgiving cup. And the hidden piece of matzah is known as the afikoman, or in the translation, which is just mind-boggling, the coming one. Therefore, in, in the true Passover that we celebrate, as Paul explained, until he comes again through the Afikoman is the promise of Christ's final coming. And we discussed over and over again how Scripture is a seamless fabric that just builds and builds more and more support for its, for its own truths. Have faith to believe it, of course. Uh, I'm going to read a little catechism here. In the Catechism at uh, the 1340, it says, By celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal, Jesus gave the Jews, Jewish Passover, its definitive meaning. Jesus passing over to his Father by his death and resurrection, the new Passover is anticipated in the Supper and celebrated in the Eucharist, which fulfills the Jewish Passover, and anticipates the final Passover of the church in the glory of the kingdom. Now, I want to read something from, from Hebrew streams that really put this in perspective and may even give us some insight in, in how, toward the end, the Jews will have a miraculous experience that will, that will bring many in, uh, into the church. 
And it starts out as, as such. Of course, they, they do not understand that the church is the spiritual Israel. But what is said here can really enlighten the soul. So it starts out, in 1925, an Australian scholar named Robert Eisler argued that at the time of Ashura, the Afikoman was originally part of an established Messianic ritual observed during the Passover. He said the whole piece of matzah held up at the beginning of the meal represented all Israel, while the broken off portion stood for the law emerged from the concealment at the end of the center. It symbolized the coming of the Messiah in the midst of the people on whether there were two or three matzahs used during the meal. According to Eisler, this symbolic ritual was, was already being observed by at least some, if not most, Jews in the first century at the time of Yeshua. The ritual thus predated. Eisler's thesis was vehemently criticized by prominent Jewish and Christian scholars who tried to suppress the publication of his sequel article in 1926. They failed, but his research lay dormant for 40 years until 1966. The uncovery of his book, He That Cometh, uh, Professor David Dobb, a Jewish biblical and legal scholar at Oxford University, revived his proposal and provided more significant documentation for the thesis. Dobb argued that the word afikoman had nothing to do with dessert, but came from the Greek verb afikomenos, which means the coming one or he who has come. Dobb said the Passover meal long had a messianic tone to it. And the Afikoman, the matzah, glowed with a special aura. He believed this was because of the expected Messiah. The Afikoman energized the setter with a deep sense of expectancy, the hope of an even greater future Passover redemption. Appropriately, this matzah was the last thing eaten at the meal. Dob believed that the unleavened bread that Yeshua gave to his disciples at the last Passover meal was actually the Afikoman. Thus, when Yeshua bread and said, take, eat, this is my body, he was in effect saying, this broken and hidden matzah, which has for our people symbolized the Messiah, is fulfilled in me. I myself am the Afikoman, the coming one, whom you expect. Dob discusses the declaration in, in the Sanhedrin and there, where it says there will be no Messiah for Israel since they have already been during the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was king during the time of Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. What's strikingly striking in this Talmudic passage is that the word enjoy is literally ate, to eat the Messiah, he that cometh. The implication of Eisler's thesis and Dobbs' added validation is clear. Yeshua took an existing Jewish Messianic prophetic tradition, uniting himself with his people into one loaf and fulfilling their Messianic hopes. And remember, for as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again, Paul tells us. The chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood has, has been doing this for 2,000 years. 
This is where Jesus unites his people into one loaf, fulfilling their messianic hopes. Scripture is a seamless fabric of a covenant mystery. It's a love story between an imperfect bride and a perfect groom. It's, it's just fascinating that that the love of God is just beyond imagination because you, you draw the parallel of of Jesus' relationship with us as a as a as a marriage, uh, and and yet the 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 marital act, if you will, in in this in this scenario is his, his suffering and death, his agony on the cross, uh, just un, unimaginable that 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 there could even that you could even consider a greater act of love than God Himself comes to Earth and endures. This unspeakable, unspeakable horror for our behalf, and yet it was. You see it. You're looking back through the 2020 lens. You see it through all of the pages of the Old Testament. It was everything was leading up to here. It was leading to the Passover. Was leading to the Passion, and yet they they totally missed it, or large segments of the population totally missed it because it didn't fit the paradigm of what they were looking for. Just astounding, isn't it? The Holy Mass is such an an amazing continuation of the act of love of Christ for his people. Now I'm going to say something that's going to sound like, um, um, you know, being polemic or, or, you know, what, what have you, but... I'm really not trying to be, but what I'm going to say is just the truth, and it's going to rub some people the wrong way, but the Pharisees were condemned for their hypocrisy because they made a pretense of religion, but they denied the power of religion. They made a pretense of religion. They denied the important facets of religion, love and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and they denied the power, even though the power was revealed right in front of them. Well, Second Timothy chapter three, verse five, Luke talks about a people who will make a pretense of religion while denying its power. And I just have uh, I just have eight points here, or seven points here that I just want to point out that they denied. They deny the power of baptism. They consider it a symbol. They deny the power of confession. As you pointed out, they take the side of the Pharisees. Only God can forgive sin. They deny the power of the papacy to bind and loose, the keepers of the keys, to interpret infallibly. They deny the power of the Eucharist, which is clearly shown in Scripture, clearly uh, foretold in Scripture, and clearly demonstrated in Scripture. They deny the power of grace to truly cleanse and convert the soul. God doesn't cover up uh, the sin. He washes it away. God doesn't declare 
the unjust man justified, he makes the unjust man. They deny the power of the intercession of the saints. And they deny the power of miracles and signs in our modern age after the age of the apostle. So the Bible is clearly talking about what we see today. The people who are in many ways Christians in, in name only. Not in belief. This diabolical false understanding of works which Luther created, they've separated from the new covenant. They've separated from the religion and ritual of the new covenant. The narrow road of transforming grace. That narrow road and that focus on humility and that focus on holiness is there for to keep us from Satan's preternatural deceptions. A preternatural mind can match wits with a preternatural mind, but that narrow road of the sacramental life and obedience to the faith is what God gave us to overcome those deceptions. Yeah, they could only be overcome by grace, and they severed the source of grace of their own free will. They severed themselves from the source of grace. So. Yeah. yeah. So we're we're going to review verse thirty or twenty-seven with the uh, haddocks here. A drinky all of this. This is spoken to the twelve apostles who were the all then present, and they all drank of it. Says Mark in fourteen twenty-three, but it no ways follows from these words spoken to the apostles that all the faithful are here managed to drink of the chalice any more than all the faithful are commanded to consecrate, offer the administer the sacrament, because Christ upon the same occasion, and as I may say with the same breath, bid the apostles to do so in these words, do this for a commemoration of me. It is a point of discipline which the church for good reasons may allow or disallow to the lady without any injury done to the receiver, who, according to the Catholic doctrine, the real presence is made partaker of the same benefit under one kind only. Edith of this bread shall live forever, John 6. When our adversaries object to us in opposition to the very clear and precise proofs we produce from the primitive writers of the doctrine of the real presence, that is called sometimes bread, a figure, a sign, we reply that, mean that the outward forms of bread and wine, which remain after consecration, are a figure, a sign of commemoration. They nowhere teach that the consecrated species are barely figures or signs and nothing more. On the contrary, St. Cyril above quoted, they say, let your soul rejoice in the Lord, being persuaded of it as a thing most certain that the bread which appears to our eyes in not, in, in, in not bread, though our taste do judge it to be so, but Christ, and that the wine which appears to our eyes is not wine, but the blood of Christ. And with St. Gregory of Nisan, the bread which at the beginning was common bread, after it has been consecrated by the mysterious word, is called and is become the body of, of Christ. And with St. Paulinus in the same writes, the flesh of Christ with which I am nourished is flesh 
as that fastened to the cross. And the blood with which my heart is purified is the same blood that was spilt upon the cross. I spent a few minutes here speaking specifically to our Protestant brothers and sisters. If you only know a construct of of, uh, anti-Catholicism, then you'll always be blocked to the deep understanding of Scripture. Now, we do not sacrifice Jesus. This is impossible. There are two main parts to a Jewish sacrifice. And you need to think like a a first-century Jewish convert when, when you look at Scripture. The slaying of the victim and the offering of the fruit to the Father. Jesus willingly gave up his life as the true Passover lamb. Paul would never have said, Oh, you foolish Galatians, before your eyes, Christ is portrayed as crucified before you, portrayed as already crucified. Paul would never have said, Behold, Israel, according to the flesh, are not those who offer the sacrifice partakers of the altar. He would never have said, We have an altar at which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat of. Christ, our true past, has been sacrificed. Let us keep the feast. For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. He would never have said things if he did not believe in the real presence. Are all Christians to show the death of the Lord through our one mediator and high priest until Christ comes again? This should be simple reasoning when you take into account that all across the New Testament is the image of the apostolic church living the religion ritual of the New Covenant. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven and those who do the will of my Father. It should be obvious that living in obedience to the faith of the religion and ritual of the New Covenant is an aspect of doing the will of the Father. Through a false understanding of works, Protestants separated from the New Covenant. They were dedicated to the doctrine and the bread and the prayers. And from the beginning of Christianity, the breaking of the bread and the prayers was the Holy Mass, which places the Eucharist before the Father as the true Passover redemption of the world. There's no individual salvation without the general redemption, and Satan has people attacking their own process of salvation. His deceptions are that complete. But people outside of the apostolic church cannot see this because they do not live the narrow road of transforming grace in obedience to the faith of the new covenant religion and sacramental rituals. This is my body. This is my blood of the new covenant. Do this and marry me. Ask yourself, do I know scripture or do I know anti-Catholicism? Do you purposely limit your capacity for faith in scripture as you constantly approach Catholicism in Scripture. Do this in memory of me. Uh, A quote here from an understanding of this. The apostles and early believers recognized the sacrificial character of Jesus' instructions. Do this in remembrance. A is better translated, offer this as my memorial sacrifice. A remembrance as sacrificial overtones. It occurs only eight times in the New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament, all but once, uh, except for Wisdom 16.6. It is a sacrificial context. Hebrews 10.3, Leviticus 24.7, Numbers 10.10, Psalms uh, 38.70. In these cases, the term anomnesis can be translated as memorial portion, memorial offering, a memorial sacrifice. 
Thus, the remaining two occurrences of anomnesis in Luke 22:19, 1 Corinthians 11:24, Christ's words, do this in remembrance of me, can be translated as offer this for my memorial sacrifice. And of course, the, 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 I'll give you an example. The types are fulfilled in the heavenly realities of the Holy Ghost. So let's look at it. Uh, remember, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the laws. And then the second legislation of Mosaic law is the sacrificial law fulfilled in Christ. So Leviticus 24, 7 says, And thou shalt put upon them the dearest frankincense, that the bread may be for a memorial of the oblation of the Lord. Oblation, sacrifice. Uh, in Numbers 10, 10. If at any time a banquet end on your festival days, and on the first days of your months, you shall sound the trumpets over the holocaust, sacrifice, and sacrifices of peace offerings, that they may be to you a remembrance of your God. I am the Lord your God. And we have the future fulfillment in the Eucharist in seen in Malachi 1.11, which the early church in the Didache shows fulfillment in the Eucharist. And Malachi from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. And in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation, for my name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord. And, of course, the spiritual imagery of even Leviticus 7, depicting what Catholic priests have done for 2,000 years in the raising of the Eucharist before the Father, is another memorial. In uh, Leviticus 7, we read, and this is the law of the peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the Lord. If he offered as for a thanksgiving, Eucharistasis, he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, Eucharistasis, unleavened cakes mingled with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and cakes mingled with oil and fine flour. Besides the cakes, he shall offer for uh, offering leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, Eucharistasis, of the peace offering. And of it, he shall offer one out of the whole oblation for a heave offering. A heave offering is the offering raised into the air before the Father by the priest. We see this same offering. When I am lifted up, I will be revealed right there in the Eucharist. Offering to the Lord, and it shall be the priest that sprinkles the blood of the peace offering, Leviticus says. Galia, written about 25 before the Catholic Church put the Bible together, the Catholic Church put the Bible together for the purpose of having uh, a canon, a rule of scripture read at every mass around the world. So Protestants, you have a Bible because the Catholic Church was given the Holy Mass through God. This guy reads, the apostles further appointed on the first day of the week, let there be service and the reading of the Holy Scriptures and the oblation. Because on the first day of the week, Sunday, our Lord rose from the place of the dead, and on the first day of the week he rose uh, upon the world, and on the first day of the week he ascended up to heaven, and on the first day of the week he will appear at last with the angels in heaven. Christianity is impossible without first taking God at his word when he said, this is my body. Understanding Christianity is impossible unless you believe that the mystery of Christ is not a metaphor but a heavenly reality. God gave us an overwhelming amount of information as proofs for the Eucharist 
as the true Passover, but it all begins with faith in God's words. This is my body. Another Jewish sacrifice that gives deep insight is the Todah. The Todah was a Jewish ritual meal instituted by God for one purpose. The ancient rabbis once made a prediction that at age all sacrifices will cease except for the Todah sacrifice. At the destruction of the temple, this was fulfilled. It continues in the heavenly reality of the Eucharist today. The Todah is a sacrificial meal among friends in order to celebrate gratitude to God. Think. Jesus says, I will now call you, uh, I will no longer call you servants, but friends. Uh, for the servant knoweth not what is death, but I have called you friends because all things whatsoever I have heard, heard of my father, I have made known to you. The Todah recalls a mortal threat, sin, and then God's gratitude for releasing them from the mortal threat, salvation. Psalms 22 is the Todah prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same words Christ, our, our, our God, said while on the cross before he drank the fourth cup of the setter feet. It is memorial sacrifice, anomnesis. The Todah includes an unbloody offering of unleavened bread and wine. After the fourth cup of the setter for over 1,300 years, the Israelites repeated these words, a promise found in Exodus 6, which also is also the four cups of the setter feast. First cup. I will take you to myself and for my people. Second cup, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I you out from the work prisons of the Egyptians, or separation from original sin and active sin through our baptism in the spiritual sense of this. Focus on what you cannot see. Everything else passes away. Slavery to sin and the stain of, of Satan uh, on the soul. Christ has lived up to his oath through every unbloody sacrifice of the, of the true unleavened bread and wine for 2,000 years, which he offered through the priest of the Father. Every Mass, we confirm our oath by eating the true lamb, and he takes us uh, as his people, uh, was the words of the fourth cup, uh, um, the cup of sacrifice in, in the marriage between God and man, which he showed us when he said, from the cross, entering his Father's glory, as he said, I thirst, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. My flesh is real food, blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. How much greater defense against sin than to know that God is physically present inside you, uniting to your soul? How can you have a closer relationship on earth? this one unites you with heaven itself. And of course, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're going to continue on here uh, because we're going to try to finish up the, the, the last two chapters uh, by, by, uh, by six o'clock here. So Matthew 26, 30-35, And a hymn being said, they went out unto Mount Olivet. Then Jesus said to them, All you shall scandalize in me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be dispersed. But after I shall be risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter answering said to him, Although all shall be scandalized in thee, I will not be scandalized. 
Jesus said to him, Amen, I say to thee, that in this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. So Jesus is telling the apostles that when he is delivered up for his death, they will fear the loss of, of their own lives and, and run away. He tells them he will rise again and see holy. Before Pentecost, uh, which brought the power of the Holy Spirit in, in the church, the apostles were not living in the strength of the Holy Spirit, uh, the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us. In Luke's gospel at this same uh, Passover, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desire to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and thou be comforted to confirm thy brethren, who said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I say to thee, Peter, the cock shall crow this day. Thou thrice denieth, thou, uh, thou knowest, knowest me. So the first use of the word uh, you is plural, meaning Satan has desire to sift the church like wheat. The second use of the word is directed to Peter alone, telling of his, of his future conversion or his future strength and understanding given to him by the Holy Spirit that he will use. He will have the power of the Holy Spirit through to confirm our support and strengthen his brethren. We saw the fulfillment of this at Pentecost in, in the book of Acts, uh, also written by Luke, where Peter spoke fearlessly to the crowd of Jesus. In Acts 3.1, Peter is mentioned as first as going into the temple to pray. In Acts 3.6, Peter works the first healing of the apostles after Pentecost. In Acts 3.12-26 and 4.8-12, Peter teaches the, the early church that there is no salvation except through Christ. In Acts 5.3, Peter declares the first anathema of Ananias and Sephariah, which was bound by God their deaths which put the fear of God in the church and in the authority of Peter. In Acts 8.14, we see a gift of the Holy Spirit that no other apostle had. Like Jesus, uh, Peter's shadow had healing power. In Acts 8.14, Peter is uh, first in conferring of the sacrament of confession. In Acts 8.20, Peter, through the power of the keys, pronounces judgment on, on Simon's quest for, for gaining laying out of hands. In Acts 10.34, Cornelius is told by an angel to find Peter, and Peter is the first to teach about salvation for both Gentiles and Jews. Peter baptized the first Gentiles into the church uh, through the power of the keys at the Council of Jerusalem. Peter separated the church from over 1,300 years of Mosaic law when he declared that both Jews and Gentiles in the church are saved by grace, not the law of Moses. We go on and on here, but I think our listeners should get the picture. And we go on. Jesus said to him, Amen, I say to thee, that in this night before the cock crow, that will deny me three times. Peter saith to him, Yea, though I should die with thee, I will, I will not deny thee. And in like manner said all the disciples. So we know that before Peter was converted, he denied Jesus three times. And uninformed Protestants try to use this denial in order to mitigate Peter's position among the apostles. 
So I'd ask my Protestant brothers and sisters, did Peter deny Jesus before or after Jesus told him to feed sheep? After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus took Peter aside and healed his wounds through, through love and compassion. Let's read it in the Gospel of John. He told the apostles that after he, he raises from the dead, he would come to them in the Galilee. And that is exactly what he did. And after Peter miraculously, with supernatural strength, hauls in a catch in a net of 153 fish, spiritually showing us the Pope as the fisher of men from the bark of Peter, which is the church, uh, when, and we hear, when therefore they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Son, loveth thou me more than these? He saith to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith to him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again, Simon, son of John, loveth thou more than these? He saith to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, loveth thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said the third time, Loveth thou me? And he said to him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. He said to, uh, to him, feed my sheep. So Peter, three times denial of Jesus in his deep hurt, in his heart for, for doing so, was relieved by the incredible compassion in Christ's love, reversing the denials made in fear with the opportunity to say to our Jesus, to the very face of God, I love you, I love you, I love you. And St. Ambrose wrote that when Jesus referred to the sheep and lambs, by the lambs he understood to mean the people in the church and by the sheep, those placed over the lambs as bishops. The leaders of the church, it, it is here that Jesus gave the power. He said, Peter will have in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter's rock, I will build my church and the gate shall not prevail against it. So we'll go on to Matthew 26, 36 through 45. Then Jesus came with them into a country place, which is called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit you here till I go yonder and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he to grow sorrowful and to be sad. Then he saith to them, My soul is sorrowful, even unto death. Stay you here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell upon his face, praying, and saying, My father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thou wilt. And he cometh to his disciples and findeth them asleep. And he saith to Peter, What? Could not watch one hour with me. Watch ye and pray that ye enter into the not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the second time he went and prayed, saying, My father, if this chalice may not pass away, but I must drink it, thy will be done. And he cometh again and findeth them asleep, for their eyes were heavy. And leaving them, he went again and prayed the third time, saying the selfsame words. Then he cometh to his disciples and said to them, Sleep ye now, and take your rest. Behold, 
the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of sinners. According to John, Gethsemane was a place that uh, uh, Jesus was accustomed to going to with his apostles. It is a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And it's derived from Aramaic Gadsmain, meaning oil press. According to the Eastern Orthodox Church tradition, Gethsemane is a is the garden where the Virgin Mary was buried and was assumed into heaven after her dormition on, on Mount Zion. Dormition meaning uh, falling asleep. We'll go on to verse 39 and, and Haddock's uh, reference to this. Let's a little further. St. Luke says about a stone's cast kneeling down, or as here in Matthew, prostrating himself. He did both. Father, if it possible, which is the same, says St. Augustine, as if he said, if thou wilt, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He that was God and man had both a divine will. He was pleased to let us know what he naturally feared as man and in the sensitive part of his soul yet shows his human will had nothing contrary to his divine will by presently adding, but not my will, but thine be done. Here, as as related by St. Luke, followed his bloody sweat. These words are a source of instruction for all Christians. These explain the breast of confessors. The same also crown the fortitude of the martyrs. For who could overcome the hatred of the world, the assaults, the temptations, the terrors and persecutions, unless Christ is not all and for all, had said to his eternal Father, nevertheless, as I will, but thou be done. We'll go on to Matthew 26, 46 to 56. Behold, he is at hand that will betray me. As he yet spoke, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude of swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the ancients of the people. And he that betrayeth him gave him a sign, saying, Whoever I shall kiss, that is he, hold him fast. And forthwith coming to Jesus, he said, Hail, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, whereto art thou come? Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and held him. And behold, one of them that were with Jesus, stretching forth his hand, drew out a sword, and striking the servant, the high priest, cut off his ear. Then Jesus saith to him, Put up again thy sword into thy place, for all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinketh thou that I cannot ask my father, and he will be present more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that so it must be done? In that same hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, You are come out, as it were, to a robber with swords and clubs to apprehend me. I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you laid not hands on me. Now all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the disciples all leave Luke's gospel says that Jesus said to Judas with a kiss, you have betrayed the son of man. 
This is for those who ignore truth and teaching a false gospel and false humility. With the lie of a kiss, people deny God to their souls. Peter probably in not understanding what Jesus meant when he said, he that hath not a sword, let him buy one, which was simply the apostle of impending danger, uh, struck the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus responded by giving a miracle of a miraculous healing to one who was there to bring about his demise even. And Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. Again, this was before the Holy Spirit infused the uh, uh, the apostles uh, with that with that spirit. And Jesus kindly explains the what he had previously explained to them over and over again. He was to die so that salvation could come. He pointed to the scriptures. Isaiah mentioned how the suffering servant took up our pains and bore our suffering. Peter quoted Isaiah 53 regarding Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our aggressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we were healed. In Deuteronomy 21 we read, you must not leave the body hanging on a pole overnight, or hanging on a tree overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day, because anyone who is hung on a, on a, a tree is under the, uh, God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And of course, these 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 words are put there for Christ. This curse also goes out to the one who would destroy the temple which Jesus did in order to end the Old Covenant. You hear in Ezra 6.11, Now I've made a decree that if anyone who whoever shall alter this commandment, a beam be taken from his house and set up, and he be nailed upon it, and his house be confiscated. Uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians says. For it is written, Curses everyone who hangeth on a tree. And the Jews were under a curse because of Jews' failure to obey the law, as we see in Galatians 3.10. In Psalms 34, we hear that none of his bones will be broken. He is an unblemished lamb. In Isaiah 53.7, he is a silent sheep among Jesus as the Lamb of God, becoming the true Passover for the general redemption of the world, gave his own life for his sheep. And the apostles yet to be strengthened fled. Um, we'll move on to Matthew 26:57 here. Uh, we're going to be going through two more chapters after this. That's why there's not too much commentary here. And uh, we'll start up with more commentary when we get this chapter. But they holding Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the ancients were assembled. And Peter followed him after uh, afar off, even to the court of the high priest, and going in, he sat with the servants that he might see the end. And the chief priest and the whole council sought false witness against Jesus, that they might put him to death. And they found not, whereas witnesses had come in. And last of all, there came two false witnesses, and they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God 
and after three days to rebuild it. And the high priest rising up said to him, Answerest thou nothing to the things which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest said to him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us if thou be the Christ, Son of God. Jesus saith to him, Thou hast said it. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. It was the high priest, Pharisees, and elders that were previously plotting against Jesus. It was Jesus who bested them uh, every, every turn. And it was Jesus who spoke with authority that pronounced the woe out for the for knowing in their hearts they were on a wrong path. So Jesus was already convicted before his trial began, and in trying to create the appearance of a trial, they even plotted to bring in false witnesses and twist his words. Jesus spoke of the temple of his body and of his and his words were purposely misconstrued. When Jesus was questioned about being the Son of God, he spoke to the souls when he responded it is you that say that I am this was not the type of salvation they were, they were looking for though and this was not a way of life of humility and charity they were willing to follow so Haddock says after the chief priests had bribed Judas to betray Christ they bring him to Caiaphas not as to his judge but as to his enemy to insult over him and then they begin to his doctrine and disciples that they might find some heads of accusation from his answers. Thus they showed that they acted contrary to common justice in apprehending a person <coughs> before they had anything to lay to his charge. Josephus relates that Caiaphas had purchased the high priesthood for that year. Although Moses at the command of God had ordained that a regular succession be kept up the father in the high priesthood. No wonder then if an iniquitous judge passed an iniquitous sentence. St. Jerome rears to this, I adjure thee by the living God. They hope this might make him uh, own himself God, for which they were for stoning him. St. Luke tells us in 2266 that this question was put to Jesus. When it was uh, when it was day, Augustine thinks it was put to him first in the night, and again the next morning. We must not forget that when Jesus Christ was examined by the high priest, one of the servants standing by gave our blessed Redeemer a box on the ear or in the face. And we'll move on to Matthew twenty six sixty five. Hey, hey, Luke. Then the high priest ran his Go ahead. Look, I just wanted to make one quick comment. Um, I'm listening uh, riveted to this, and, and it's just unbelievable that I'm going to be going there next year and seeing all the places where this happened. But I just had an interesting insight because I always wondered about Jesus' comment, you have said so, when he, when he said, uh, I adjure you by the living God to say if you are the Christ, and Jesus responds, you have said so. And then I thought about this. He said, I adjure you by the living God. He's talking to him. <laughs> He's talking <laughs> yeah. to the living God. 
So exactly. So it makes sense that Jesus will respond. You have said so. <laughs> yes, I'm he that you are addressing. So I just wanted to wanted to throw that out and uh, for what it's worth. Please continue. Oh, and just like that, we just lost uh, we just lost Luke. We just lost our connection with Luke. So let let me give him a second to try to call back in. And if if he can't, then I'll try to connect with him like we did last week. Here we go with the dreaded the dreaded glitch again. So let's give him a let's give him a second to try to to try to connect. Luke, if you're listening, try to call back in. Try to connect again. I'm gonna, I guess he's having trouble connecting, so I'm gonna try to connect with him. There he is. Ah, there you are. <laughs> well, let's move on because we got a lot to cover. Yeah. So Matthew 26, we'll go 65 through 75. Then the high priest rent his garment, saying, He hath blasphemed. What further need have we uh, of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard the blasphemy. What think you? But they answering said, he is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others struck his face with the palms of their hands, saying, saying, I know not that uh, what thou sayest. Luke. Uh Uh-huh. Your microphone completely broke out. So uh, everything that you said after he struck him with his hand, okay. repeat every everything after that because you your microphone blanked out. Okay. But Peter sat within the court, and there came to him a servant maid, saying, Thou how also wast with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And he, and as he went out of the gate, another maid saw him, and she saith to him, that were there, this man also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I know not the man. And after a little while, they came that stood by and said to Peter, surely thou also art one of them, for even thy speech doth discover thee. Then he began to curse and to swear that he knew not the man, and immediately the cock crowed. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which he had said, Before the cock crow, thou wilt deny me thrice, and going forth he wept bitterly. So the punishment for blasphemy is death, but Jesus never spoke an untrue word. And another interesting, another interesting thing that I wanted to point out real quick is uh, for our detractors, 
that argue against whether Jesus calls Peter rock, they throw this up at us. Well, Jesus, uh, well, Peter denied Jesus three times. So when you come back to them and say, well, did Jesus foretell that? And he said, well, yeah, Jesus said this very night you will deny me three times. And and then you say, that's correct, this very night. That's what Jesus said. How do we know that? The Greek term is epitartite, which means this exact same. So when Jesus said, this exact same night, you will deny me three times. And they say, okay, I agree with that. Well, it's the same phrase that's used in, in Matthew 16. Jesus says, you are a rock, and upon this exact same rock, epitartite, Will I build my church? It's the same phrase. So please continue. And there's there's so many other images of authority that, you know, you would have to deny over and over and over again. So why don't we just, uh, why don't we go on to uh, Matthew chapter 27? Yep. And when morning was come, all the chief priests and ancients of the people took counsel against Jesus that they might put him to death. And they brought him bound and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Jesus, who betrayed him, seeing that he was condemned, repenting himself, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and ancients, saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? Look thou to it. And casting down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself with, with an altar. Halter. Matthew does not address here the cruelties that happened to the Son of Man throughout the night, but begins the next narrative at, at daylight, where the council again with a boldness led by Caiaphas plots his death. This is most likely the, the full council of the Sanhedrin here. And Luke's gospel, we hear again that in the morning, they questioned Jesus uh, on being the son of God. Luke writes, and as soon as it was day, the ancient people and the chief priests and scribes came together, and they brought him into their council, saying, if thou be the Christ, tell us. And he saith to them, if I shall tell you, you will not believe me. And if I shall also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. But hereafter, the Son of Man shall be sitting on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God, who said, You say that I am? And they said, What need of we any further testimony? So Jesus is now condemned by the council for announcing the, the truth. He would be delivered to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and they would further make his, uh, their case or is being put to death. Uh, I'm going to go on to. Uh, we're going to we're going to uh, go on to the next verses here. So Matthew 27 6 through 10. But the chief priest, having taken the pieces of silver, said, "It is not lawful to put them into the korbana." because it is the price of blood. And after they had consulted together, they bought with them the potter's field to be a burying place for strangers. For this cause, that field was called 
Hasseldama, that is the field of blood even to this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was prized, whom they prized of the children of Israel, and they gave them unto the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. The Corbona was a place in the temple where the people would put in their gifts or offerings. In classical Syriac, it is the typical term for religious sacrifices. So considering that the 30 pieces of silver was blood money and the false righteousness of the Pharisees uh, uh, lived, they, they lived by, uh, they chose not to use the money for sacrifices but used for a potter's field. So St. Jerome says it was to disgrace Jesus, thus to keep alive in the minds of the people that he was sold by one of his own disciples and delivered up to a disgraceful death. The potter's field was originally a place where the poor were buried, and priests bought clay-rich land owned by pot makers for, for burial grounds. So the blood money of Judas is covered over to make a place for the poor and foreigners that would uh, uh, be separated from the normal burial grounds of Jewish people who were understood to be the people of God. So it was a place of alienation. Now uh, prison graveyards are actually referred to as potter's fields. Uh, Matthew writes that this was the prophecy of Jeremiah fulfilled, but we do not see this in Jeremiah. It's kind of interesting. We see it in uh, Zechariah 11, uh, 12 through 13. So well, let's go there first. <clears throat> I'm going to take a drink of water. In Zechariah, we read, And I took my rod that was called beauty, and I cut it asunder to make my, void my covenant, which I had made with all the people. And it was made void in that day. And so the poor of the flock that keep for me understood that it is the word of the Lord. And I said to them, If it be good in your eyes, bring hither my wages, and if not, be quiet. And they wait for my wages. And uh, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> Got a little advertisement going on there. Oh, did you? Yeah, I heard uh, Block Talk Radio. <laughs> that's that's weird. <laughs> we got all so kinds of voodoo going on tonight, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we're trying to finish up for Christmas at the same time and still present a good, you know, presentation. So you're kind of running through it a little bit here. So we'll continue with Zechariah. And the Lord said to me, cast it to the statuary a handsome price that I was prized at by them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and I cast them into the house of the Lord to the statuary. And I cut off my second rod that was called a cord that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Those baptized in the church became the spiritual lineage of Judah and the king. The breaking of the brotherhood between Judah and Israel was completed through the crucifixion. It's interesting that Augustine said that uh, in the passage of Matthew on his prophecy, he said that some of the manuscripts mention no prophet, but we do not find the reference to 30 pieces of silver in Jeremiah. One explanation could be that the, during the time of Matthew, there's there's a book of prophets and that 
Jeremiah was considered the most prominent. So the book may have had the title starting with Jeremiah. But Zechariah mentions the 30 pieces of silver, and Jeremiah 19 mentions the potters in, in the same context of a coming doom. So now let's move on to Jeremiah, where he says, Thus saith the Lord, go and take a potter's earthen bottle, and take of the ancients of the people, and of the ancients of the priests, and go forth into the valley of the son of Enam, which is by the entry of the earthen gate. And there thou shalt proclaim the words that I shall tell thee. And thou shalt say, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye king of Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring an affliction upon this place, so that whoever shall hear it, his ears shall tingle, because they have forsaken me and have profaned this place, and have sacrificed there unto strange gods whom neither they nor their fathers knew, nor the kings of Judah. And they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. And they have built the high places of Balaam to burn their children with fire for a holocaust to Balaam, which I did not command nor speak of, neither did it once come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Enam, but the valley of slaughter. And I will defeat the council of Judah and of the Jerusalem in this place, and I will destroy them with the sword in the sight of their enemies, and by the hands of them that seek their lives, and I will give their carcass to be meat for the fowls of the air and the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city an astonishment, a hissing. Every one that shall pass it by it shall be astonished and shall hiss because of all the plagues therein. And I will feed them with the flesh of their sons and with the flesh of their daughters. And they shall eat every one of the flesh of his friend in siege and in their distress wherewith their enemies and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. And we'll go on. And it sounds like the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem as the whore who fornicated with pagans. Uh, due to the starvation, they even ate their young, as uh, Josephus described in, in, in the seas of Jerusalem. And yeah. Topheth is a place in Jerusalem where the Israelites falling to pagan worship in a ritualistic sacrifice is described as where the Israelites uh, passed their children through fire. Now, this was Guyana, which means a place or state of misery it is a state of, of hell. And Jesus in Matthew 10 uses this imagery to describe hell. And yeah. uh, Haddock gives uh, – uh, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just – Okay, okay. Haddock gives a, a, a little understanding of this confusion also. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken in by Jeremiah. Jeremiah is now in all Latin copies in the general reading of the Greek whereas the passage is found in Zechariah 11.12. Some judge it to have been in some writing of Jeremiah, now lost, as St. Jerome says, he found it in a writing of Jeremiah, which was not canonical. Others conjecture that Zechariah had also the name of Jeremiah. Others that St. Matthew neither put Jeremiah or Zechariah, but only of the prophet, uh, what he was writing. 
and that the name of Jeremiah had crept into the text. But Jeremiah is not in the Syriac, and St. Augustine says it was not in diverse copies. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, each of which was called an Argentius. The evangelist cites not the words, but the sense of the prophet who was ordered to cast the pieces into the house of the Lord and to cast them to the potter, which became true by the fact of Judas, who cast them into the temple and with them was purchased the potter's field, the price of him that was prized. In the prophet, we read the handsome price spoken ironically as the Lord did appoint me uh, or as he had decreed. Right. You know, Luke, um, a lot of people don't see the typology here of the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, I was arguing with a Protestant a few years ago that said, oh, that puny battle, that, that didn't fulfill this prophecy. Um, because people don't understand just how huge the the siege of Jerusalem was. And it occurred on the 9th of Av, so uh, in the year 70 AD, that I believe it was August 4th. And a million people died. A million people died. That's two and a half times the total number of Americans who died in World War II. So, uh, and, and in 70 AD, a million people was a pretty big percentage of the uh, Jewish population. So this was an earth-shaking event. And according to Josephus, the bodies were rotting. The, the, they were starving to death. They starved them mm-hmm. out. And they even cooked their own children to, to survive. Yeah. And, uh, and it wiped out the entire uh, Levitical system and the Pharisaic system of, of Judaism. It was basically the end of their world as they knew it because their world was the law. Yeah. And the entire aspect of the second legislation, the Mosaic law, the ceremony and the ritual law of the Jews was their life. Right. And 20 years later, uh, they got together and created an entirely new form of Judaism to replace it. Yeah. And that's why you get some people get confused when they talk about a Judeo-Catholic book. When we say that, we're referring to the Judaism before the destruction of the temple. Right. So we'll go on to Matthew 27, 11 through 14. <clears throat> and Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus saith to him, Thou sayest it. And when he was accused by the chief priests and ancients, he answered nothing. Then Pilate saith to him, Dost not thou hear how great testimonies they allege against thee. And he answered him to never a word, so that the governor wondered exceedingly. Uh, Jesus knows that Pilate wanted nothing to do with Jesus, but he has already in his mind pretty much made his decision after being influenced by the Pharisees. So he's he's, he's complex in this situation. So he he has no reason for any uh, dialogue uh, uh, Pilate, uh, Jesus does with Pilate, but Pilate is simply going to give a politically expedient ruling, uh, even, even though he will go against his own conscience here, uh, by trying to get him to say that he is a king, uh, 
like like the Pharisees accused him of. So then he would be getting him to confirm that he was there to destroy the current civil order of the authority of Rome, who has one king, and that is Caesar. So before this point in Luke's gospel, we hear that the Pharisees lied to Pilate, saying that Jesus taught that he was causing discord among the people and teaching that they should not give tribute to Caesar. Right. And Pontius Pilate today is the uh, is the so-called pro-choice politician, uh, a murderer who's too cowardly to admit what he does, but not too cowardly to do it. Uh, exactly, and I was just you know I was, I was thinking the same thing when I was when I was studying this. <laughs> yeah. So we'll move on to Matthew twenty-seven fourteen through twenty-five. And he answered him to never a word, so that the governor wondered exceedingly. Now, upon the solemn day, the governor was accustomed to release to the people one prisoner, whom they would. And he had then a notorious prisoner that was called Barabbas. They therefore being gathered together, Pilate said, Whom will you that I release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, that is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. And as he was sitting in the place of judgment, his wife sent to him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and ancients persuaded the people that they should ask Barabbas and make this away. And the governor answering said to them, Whether you will, of, uh, whether will you of the two to be released of you? But they said, Barabbas, Pilate saith to them, what shall I do then with Jesus that is called Christ? They say all, let him be crucified. The governor said to them, Why, what evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And Pilate, seeing that he prevailed nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, taking water, washed his hands before the people, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man. And the whole people answering said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. Pilate appears to want to release Jesus, but he is caught up in, in, in the political problem, which will trump what he feels in his heart. And he sees Jesus as an innocent man, yet the Pharisees bared false witness against him. And it was these lies of the Pharisees that were also in his mind. As the prophecies foretold, Jesus was silent and was as a lamb being led to the slaughter. So in an act of expediency and in thinking he is creating an environment of being a reasonable judge, he gives the mob a choice and puts Jesus in competition with a murderer. So he may have even have been thinking, surely the crowd are, are, are should I say, the, the first poll here will choose to free Jesus over a murderer. Of course, he thought wrong. Satan often foments violence and hatreds in crowds and appears that it was uh, what was done uh, here. But not knowing it, God was using Satan's own ego against him in his process of bringing about salvation. Paul tells the church at Corinthians, Howbeit we speak wisdom among the perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, neither the princes of this world that cometh to not, 
but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, a wisdom which is hidden, which God hath ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For if they had known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. It was not out of the ordinary uh, during this time for Gentiles to have these types of dreams as God was preparing them for entrance into the church. Jerome said on this occasion that there might be a public testimony for the Gentiles of the justice and uh, innocence of Jesus. So the crowds became enraged because Pilate even called Jesus the Christ, which we have discussed earlier means anointed and king. Jesus will go to the cross as priest, prophet, and king. We see here a strong possibility that it was God who planted these words in his mind, so the rejection of the Jews of their king would be clearly defined. As for Barabbas, the name Barabbas is mentioned nowhere else in the New Testament, and the name itself not being a common name is accepted by most theologians to mean son of the father or son of the teacher. Origen noted that the full name of Barabbas may have been Jesus Barabbas, uh, since Jesus was a common first name. So what this is, what does this do for our spiritual imagery here? The Jews at that time were given the choice, Christ or an Antichrist. They said, free Barabbas. Then again, God has, have, must have put these words in, in Pilate's mouth. And Pilate, seeing that he prevailed nothing, but that rather tumult, uh, tumult was made, taking water, washed his hands before the people, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man, look you to it. And the whole people answered and said, his blood be be upon us. So we're still a little behind, so I'm going to move on to the next verses. In Matthew 27, 26 to 31, then he released to them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him unto them to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor, taking Jesus into the hall, gathered together unto him the whole band. And stripping him, they put a scarlet cloak about him. Plotting the, the, a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand. And bowing the knee before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And spitting upon him, they took the reed and struck his head. And after they had mocked him, they took off the cloak from him and put him his own garments and led him away to be cruci- to crucify him. Pilate was subject to the laws of Rome. And one of these laws was that those who were put to death were first scourged. The pagans fulfilling prophecy dressed Jesus like a king, even with a crown of thorns, gave him a staff and mocked him, doing the will of Satan. The ram caught by his thorns in the thicket in Genesis 22, 13 points us to the sacrifice of Christ to come wearing the crown of thorns. And Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced through, through uh, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we were healed. The scourging of Jesus was uh, was a horrific thing. Uh, let me read the words of Anne Catherine Emmerich real quick. The whips of uh-huh. scourges which they first made. Yes. 
Are you there? I'm here. Okay. The Whoopsie scourges which they first made use of appear to me to be a species of flexible white wood, but perhaps they were composed of the sinews of the ox or of strips of leather. Two fresh executioners are made use of a different kind of rod, a species of thorny stick covered with knots and splinters. Two fresh executioners took the places of the last mentioned who were beginning to flag their scourges were composed of small chains or straps covered with iron hooks, which penetrated the bone and tore off large pieces of flesh at every every blow. I, I just shudder at the knowledge of what Jesus did for us, and, and all we can do is, is uh, express sorrow for our sins and, 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 and thank him for what he, he endured for us. Place the true Passover for the world, the general yeah. redemption of the world and the Holy Mass. Matthew 27:32 And going out they found a man of Cyrene named Simon him they forced to take up his cross and they came to the place that is called Golgotha which is the place of Calvary and they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall and when he had tasted it he would not drink and after they had crucified him they divided his garments casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying they divided my garments among them, and among my vestiture they cast lots. And they sat and watched him, and they put over his head his cause written, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. So, you just discussed, you know, that, that scourging. So, move on. Chapter 16, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We can see Simon as a spiritual example or, or spiritual imagery of this. To be Christian is to follow Christ, even to the cross. Jesus with his apostles partook of the third cup of the setter, the Thanksgiving cup from which we get the word Eucharist, of course, with the apostles and what was being forced on him was a drink of wine mixed with gall or vinegar was given to him not at the proper time so he refused the drink this supports the idea that he is showing us the true setter and the true passover of the holy mass through his own death <coughs> and haddock says regarding the the gall uh from the ordinary greek copies translated vinegar but other Greek copies have wine, which St. Jerome and St. Hilary followed. And as St. Mark, all copies, uh, without exception, have wine mixed with myrrh. Perhaps myrrh from its bitterness is here called gall. It is also observed that wine with a mixture of myrrh was often given uh, to those who were to die a, a violent death. And we'll move on to Matthew 27:38. Then were crucified with him two thieves, one on the right hand and one on the left. And they that passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple of God, and in three days thou dost rebuild it, save thy own self. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. In like manner also the chief priests with the scribes and ancients mocking said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. 
if he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him now deliver him if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the selfsame thing uh, of the thieves also that were crucified with him reproached him with. Matthew doesn't show us the, the conversion of the thief on the cross as, as the Gospel of Luke does. And if the thief on the cross did not die but lived on and went on sitting, would he have been saved? Was the thief on the cross under the old covenant or, or the new? He was under the old. He was under the Mosaic covenant. So in the new is a prophecy fulfilled with laws we've written on our hearts. We, we, we discussed this all the way at the back of Matthew, this, this, this transformation that went on from uh, something missing in the heart to Christ fulfilling that. And were those in the new covenant baptized into the church? Were they not those who chose to live in obedience to the faith, the sacramental life, fighting concupiscence? But Jesus gave the great commission when he told the leaders of the church to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, and how are disciples made? Well, obviously, part of the disciples who made the baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus uh, explains that part of this development into a disciple of Christ includes baptism into his church. So, I would ask our Protestant brothers and sisters, is the Holy Spirit present at baptism? Doesn't Jesus explain that he is? The Great Commission includes an invocation of the Holy Spirit. Now, did the thief on the cross with his, cross with his dying breaths lift himself up and expand his lungs defending Christ in faith? Jesus says your faith has saved you. Go and sin no more. Didn't Christ say this to a Jew before Pentecost who simply combined the Mosaic law they were already living in obedience to the faith, uh, with, with faith? Was Abraham obedient to God? Scripture tells if the righteous man shall scarcely be saved, then what about the unbeliever or the sinner? Scripture tells us follow peace and holiness with all men. Without, no man shall see God. Paul says, I run the race to win. We hear charity covers a multitude of sins. It's by faith, because you cannot live in true faith without being a just man. This is the breastplate. Paul writes, where is then thy boasting? It is excluded by what law of works? The second legislation of Mosaic law, the curse of the law given for worshiping the golden calf, is literally the law of works. This is the ceremonial and ritual Jewish law. Paul goes on in the same verse and says, no, but by the law of faith. The law of faith requires belief and obedience to the faith. So no, there is no way that the thief on the cross who repented if he did not die and lived on and returned to sin, would he have been saved? And it was Peter who said, for flying from the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they be again entangled in them and overcome. Their later state is to become unto them worse than the former. For it has been better for them not to have known the ways of justice 
that after they have known it and turned back from the, that holy commandment, which was delivered to them, for that the true proverb has happened to them, the dog has returned to his vomit, the sow that was washed to her wallow in the mire. Yeah, you know, you know, hold on just one second. The late great Bishop Fulton Sheen said this so masterfully, Luke. He said there were two thieves dying on the cross, and one wanted to be taken down and the other wanted to be taken up. Uh, the good thief accepted his cross and offered it up. So the uh, faith alone canard is just so much nonsense. Uh, it is so, so, so damaging. We'll move on. Matthew 27, 45 to 53. Now from the sixth hour, there is darkness over the whole earth until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama, Saba, Ectomy. <laughs> well, Eli, Eli, Lama, Saba, You know, you know my downfall. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. That is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Herod said, this man calleth Elias. And immediately one of them running took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the other said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to deliver him. And Jesus again crying out with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top even to the bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints that had slept arose. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, came into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, Mark said that he was crucified in the third hour. The sixth hour is noon when the skies went dark. Tertullian described the dark, darkened skies not as an eclipse, but as an omen. The total eclipse provides darkness at, at one location during a totality for a maximum of seven and a half minutes, whereas the gospel text states that the darkness covered the land for roughly three hours. The account of the darkness is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, so it must have been very important to the authors. Some callers, scholars think that the skies going dark is a foreboding of a destruction of the temple, which was like the end of the world for the Jewish people, as we discussed. Mark says on preparation day, the eve of the Sabbath, Jesus was crucified at the sixth hour or around noon, and the darkness fell over all the land. Preparation by the killing of the lambs. They are roasted by being propped up by sticks going through, through them crossways and top to bottom in the form of a cross. When people would walk into the Jerusalem, the temple area, they would see lambs crucified all over the place. Uh, sometimes you, you find some great stuff in Wikipedia. So I, I want to read a little uh, of this here concerning the darkness. Tertullian in his Apologeticus in, in AD 197 refers to the crucifixion darkness and claimed that an independent account of the omen was held in the Romans archives. And yet nailed upon the cross, he exhibited many notable signs by which his death was distinguished from all others. At his own free will, he, with a word, dismissed from him his spirit, anticipating the executioner's work. In the same hour, too, the light of day was withdrawn, 
when the sun at the very time was in his meridian blaze. Those who were not aware that this had, had been predicted about Christ no doubt thought in an eclipse. You yourselves have the account of the world portent still in your archives. Tertullian is discussing in AD 248, the crucifixion darkness story was used by the Christian apologist Origen as an example of the biblical account being supported by non-Christian sources. When the pagan critic Celsus claimed that Jesus could hardly be a god because he has performed no great deeds, Origen responded in against Celsus by recounting the darkness, earthquake, and opening of tombs as proof that the incident had happened. Origen refers to a description by the Chronicles of Phlegion of an eclipse accompanied by earthquakes felt in other parts of the empire during the reign of Tiberius. In his Chronicle of Theophanes, 9th century Christian chronicler, um, George Sincellus cites the history of the world of Sextus Julius Africanus in writing in a reference to the darkness mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels as occurring the death of Jesus. He writes, on the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Dallas in the third book of, of his histories, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. For the Hebrews celebrate Passover on the 14th day, according to the moon, and the passion of our Savior falls on the day before the Passover, and an eclipse of the sun takes place only when the moon comes under the sun. It cannot happen at any other time, but in the interval between the first day of the moon and last uh, of the old. So you even had ancient historians referring to, you know, the impossibility of, of the sky going dark. So in the earlier recording, what we did on defending the Eucharist, we, we talked about these 18 benedictions. And I think it would be appropriate to bring that up again here. And it is probable due to the fact that in the Jewish history, there is a record of the Jews daily praying the 18 benedictions, that this prayer was on the minds of the Jewish nation are being prayed while Jesus was on the cross and the skies were growing, growing dark and the dead were seen alive. So uh, according to the Jewish tradition, the prayers were said at 9 a.m. This would be when Jesus was crucified and at 3 p.m. when Jesus died. And the same time the lambs were being sacrificed in the courtyard for the daily Talmud sacrifice of two lambs. It was the daily sacrifice offered at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. The Talmud was being considered as a public sacrifice or offered by the, the whole people of Israel. So at the time of Christ's death, the Jews in the temple will be praying for redemption, the seventh benediction. Look upon our affliction and plead our cause and redeem us speediously for the namesake, for your mighty and your mighty redeemer. According to Jewish tradition, at these same times, the Jews in the temple would have been praying for forgiveness of sins. And the sixth benediction, forgive us, O our Father, 
for we have sinned. Pardon us, O our king. According to Jewish tradition at the same times, they would be praying for the coming of the Messiah. Speedily cause the offspring of your servant David to flourish and let him be exalted by your saving power. For we wait all day long for your salvation. What is amazing and simply beyond words is that according to the Jewish tradition at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., the Jews in the temple would have been praying for the resurrection of the dead. And they'd be praying, you, O Lord, are mighty forever. You revive the dead. You have the power to save. You sustain the living with kindness. You revive the dead with great mercy. And uh, this this is just uh, beyond belief. <laughs> yeah, so we'll just uh, ponder the irony that they were literally praying to God as they were killing him. Uh, but I, I just wanted to mention one more thing that you talked about Daniel's 70 weeks. And that points to April 3rd, 33 AD as the uh, day of the crucifixion of Christ. And um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, NASA has actually uh, provided evidence or, or proof that there was uh, an eclipse reported on that day in Palestine. And the National Geological Review has done the same uh, regarding an earthquake in Palestine on exactly that same day. So we have scientific proof of the eclipse and the earthquake in Palestine on April 3rd, 33 AD. Yeah, that's just, just uh, um, how much more proof do you need? I mean, it's just yeah. over and over right. and over and over again. So we'll move on to Matthew 27:54. Now the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus Having said the earthquake and the things that were done were sore afraid, saying, Indeed, this was the Son of God. And there were there many women afar off who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among who was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph the mother of the son of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a certain rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that the body should be delivered. And Joseph, taking the body, wrapped it up in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new monument, which he had hewn out of a rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the monument and went his way. And there was there Mary Magdalene and the mother sitting over against the sepulcher. And the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the priests and the Pharisees came together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we have remembered that that seducer said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be guarded until the third day, lest perhaps his disciples come and steal away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last heir shall be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, guard it as you know. And they departing, made the sepulcher sure seal, sealing the stone and setting guards. Chrysostom said that the centurion being afterwards confirmed in the faith was honored with the crown of martyrdom. He probably experienced fear of God. Uh, if I remember, I, I believe there was also a geological study done at, at the Dead Sea 
that showed an earthquake occurring at the same time period. And the three Marys were present at the crucifixion and all the apostles, but John ran off. What spiritual message can we uh, uh, see in this? Well, John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is a very peculiar statement. You got to ask, did Jesus love only one, one disciple? So also we know that uh, to this apostle, uh, Jesus placed the care of his mother, and he was the only one who uh, you know, died a natural death. So the disciple whom Christ loved took Mary into his home or took Mary as his own. This shows us that we are all called to be disciples who he loved. Right. So we're moving on to uh, Matthew uh, chapter 28. This is a short chapter. We're going to go through it, and we'll talk about it at the end. And since we got 15 minutes. And in the end of the Sabbath, when it began to, to dawn, toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and coming rolled back the stone and sat upon it. And his countenance was as lightning and his raiment as snow. And for fear of him, the guards were struck with terror and became as dead men. And the angel answering said to the women, fear not you, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And he is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord has, was laid. And going quickly, tell ye this disciples that tell him, tell his disciples that he is risen. And behold, he will go before you in Galilee. There you shall see him. Lo, I have foretold it to you. And they went out quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, running to tell his disciples. <clears throat> I'm going to drink of water here. So at the end of the Sabbath or at the first day after the day Sabbath, emphasizing that the establishment of the true Sabbath is over. In the Holy Mass, Christ is memorialized in the true Sabbath and rises again in us through receiving Christ in our hearts and bodies and going forth into the world. And uh, you can just, see this imagery as millions of streams of light, you know, due to the Eucharist, due to the presence of Christ in us. So the, the two Marys came to the tomb while it was still dark at the end of the Sabbath in the dawn of a new day, the day the Lord has made, our Sunday. And the angel did not remove the stone in order to let Jesus out. The angel removed the stone, breaking the seal to show that he was already gone. Uh, recent examination of the Shroud of Turin now dates it back to the time of the Christ and the negative image like an x-ray according to science is said to have been produced by a burst of energy greater than any energy source on earth as Jesus was transformed into his glorified spiritual body and flowed through the burial cloth. Uh, the big F centurions here, you know, experienced something that short-circuited their reality. Uh, right. The angels have appeared uh, pretty awesome and so powerful that uh, these trained fighters were, were so afraid that they would not even think of trying to defend their post, even though they would be punished for not doing so. Uh, so powerful that all of their senses were just simply locked up. 
they're paralyzed per se. And yet at the same time, the angel appeared to Mary's, the Marys as a celestial being, but a benevolent one. So the angel, in order to further create witness for the resurrection, told the women to go into the tomb so they could witness that Jesus was no longer there. Uh, the angel tells the woman he has risen, uh, words that will be imprinted in, in time for eternity. And the angel tell, uh, tells the women to tell the apostles that he has risen. And the angel, as Christ in the flesh did before his death, told them that Jesus would meet his apostles in Galilee, the place we, we talked about when we were first uh, in, in, in the first couple chapters showing this place as composed of both Jews and Gentiles as a precursor to the Gentiles entering the church. In Matthew 28, 8 through 15, and they went out quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, running to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. But they came upon and came up and took hold of his feet, adored him. Then Jesus said to them, Fear not, go, tell my brethren that they go into the Galilee. There they shall see me. Who, when they were departed, behold, some of the guards came into the city and told the chief priests all things that had been done. And they, being assembled together with the ancients, taking counsel, gave a great sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Say you, his disciples came by night and stole him away when we were asleep. And if the governor shall hear of this, we will persuade him and secure you. So they, taking the money, did as they were taught, and this word was spread abroad uh, among the Jews of the day. Now, Haddock says, uh, when it says Jesus met them, According to St. Mark, Christ appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and then the particulars are related by St. John. She at first did not know him, but took him for the gardener. Then he called her by her name, Mary, and she knew him. He said to her, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Uh, according to common exposition, I have not ascended, nor am I yet going to ascend. Thou mayest see me again before I ascend. This is not the last time. We also read here that he appeared to some of the other women as they were returning to Jerusalem from the sepulcher, and that they laid hold of his feet and adored him, nor is it said that he hindered them. So why Jesus the gardener? Uh, this imagery returns us to the true Adam, who was told to tend the garden, but was also told to defend the garden. As the laws were written on our hearts and millions of streams of light begin to flow out from the churches of those receiving the Eucharist, a world of demons in control began to be suppressed. And Christians in this new heaven and new earth were given the power to cast out the demons. God tends the garden of his own flesh, as, as Paul tells us, husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church delivers it himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the lover of water in the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So also ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself, 
For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, as also Christ does the church. In the new garden, Jesus gives us the fruit of his body and blood, the tree of knowledge through his church, which as his body, his flesh, also Mount Zion, through which the law and wisdom of God has gone out into the world. And yet he also, in taking us as his own, called us to tend the garden, not only of our souls, but of the entire world, when he gave the Great Commission. And the 11 disciples went into the Galilee, into the mountain, where Jesus has appointed them. And seeing them, they adored, but some doubted. And Jesus coming and spoke to them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. This is to the church. And behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. Amen. I just wanted to point something out, Luke. Um, We just spent 26 hours, and there were things that we had to leave out. There were things that we didn't go into. We could go so much deeper if we had the time. We spent 26 hours on this gospel, and it wasn't enough. It's that deep. It's that rich. It's just, um, it's amazing. So I want to say two things. First, it was truly an honor to do this series with you. And um, I'm so looking forward to doing the Gospel of John uh, in January, starting in January. And the other thing, Luke, is it, it gives me chills to imagine that I'm going to set my eyes on the various Places and locations where all of these things happened. I'm going to see the sepulcher. I'm going to see the where he was born. I'm going to see the shepherd's field. I'm going to see Caesarea Philippi. All these places that we talked about in this gospel, I'm going to see. And I just can't, I can't imagine what that's going to be like. It's going to be an experience, a life-changing experience. I believe it. I believe it. I mean, just just the experience that we had in Rome and and and, uh, and kneeling as we went up the steps, uh, praying the rosary. Uh, I'll, I'll remember that one the the rest of my life. Yeah. The holy steps. So I, I I couldn't imagine what you're going to experience. Yeah, it it, it gives me chills. I, in fact, one thing that Steve Ray said when he was when he was a guest on our show is he said when we get to the top of Golgotha, he'll have us reach out our hands. And and then explain to us that the exact spot where we're placing our hands, if we would have brought, brought touched that exact spot, you know, all those years or two thousand years ago, brought our hand back, it would be covered with blood. And it's just not. It, it's is a, a an awe inspiring experience. It was such a privilege to do this series with you, and I want to wish you and your family. Feelings mutual. I want to wish you and your family a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we're going to do something light next next week, next Monday. We'll probably play some Christmas music. Uh, and then we're going to take the next two Mondays off, obviously, for Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And then we return in 2024. And uh, 
uh, I, I the sky's the limit as to where this apostle could go, and I think we're going to take it to new heights in in the new year. It's come so far in this one; it's uh, really moving. Amen. Well, God bless you, um, and uh, you I'll see you. I'll see you next Monday, and I uh, hope you and your family have a wonderful Christmas. You too. All right. Good night. Good night.